0: Amen. Michael Gunger, who used to be part of our church, actually wrote that song. A few years ago, he called me and said, Peter, could we have lunch? I just need to talk to you about something. And we sat down at Chili's down on Hampton and, Hampton and Santa Fe. And he said, Peter, I wrote this song and released it. And you wouldn't believe the grief I'm getting for it. And I said, oh, no, I would believe it. So <laughs> let's, let's pray, all right? Father, we thank you that... Uh, you have revealed through Jesus the Christ and through your scripture that you are love. And uh, Lord God, um, you are love for everyone because you do not change and you are one. And so we thank you for who you are and we pray that you would cause us to preach your word this morning and to surrender our hearts to your word this morning in Jesus' name. Who is a word? Amen. You know, we've been uh, studying Ephesians uh, now, this is our 42nd sermon, I think. Uh, Studying Ephesians 6 for quite a while, and in that, Paul teaches about our struggle against the principalities and powers, about the world rulers of this present darkness. And he tells us to take up the armor of God and then to pray at all times, then, in verse eighteen he writes to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, Mysterion tau, secret of the good news, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it, the mystery of the gospel, boldly as I ought to speak. And so there's a kind of an obvious question here, and that is, what is the mystery of the gospel? You you know, a mystery is something that we cannot fully comprehend or control. Eugene Peterson wrote this, The secularized mind is terrorized by mysteries. Thus it makes lists, labels people, assigns roles, and solves problems. Eugene uh, Lowry wrote this, God is not a problem. God is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be evoked. Well then, okay, what is the mystery of the gospel? And is it good, or is it bad? You know, when I think of mystery, I, I pretty much immediately think of mystery science theater. I mean, did you watch that back in the 90s? Mystery It's like a, a monster raining down judgment upon the earth. Mystery is like a power that's alien to our world. Mystery is like a head with no body. Mystery is like a she-creature. But mystery doesn't always have to be bad. I think one of my favorite Christmases, my very favorite, was one we had eight years ago. Uh, Our kids were mostly teenagers by this time and so they pretty much had Christmas, you know, figured out, but this Christmas was a mystery. One of them opened a present, It, it was a swimsuit and I remember she smiled and said, thanks. And then I'm sure she silently thought that was a stupid present. Mom must have found a sale somewhere. And then another opened a present, a a beach towel. And and he he thought to himself, well, I sure hope mom didn't spend all the money on this stupid sale that she found. It went on like that for about a half hour. Towels, swimsuits, swim goggles, covered ups. And I could see the disappointment and the confusion in my kids' faces as they wondered to themselves, what were mom and dad thinking? a sale on swimwear you see was certainly a possibility anything more however was just too much to believe it was inconceivable it was impossible well after all the presents were opened, we handed each of the kids an envelope that contained an airline ticket to kona hawaii at first at first the kids were incredulous they just didn't believe it they they wouldn't believe but now they'll tell you it was the best christmas ever and the best family vacation ever. Every gift that Christmas morning was a mystery that at first appeared very bad, but that turned into the greatest good, redeemed at the cost of a ticket to paradise. Toward the end of the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says to Frodo and Pippin, many folks like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table. But those who have labored to prepare the feast like to keep their secret, for wonder makes the words of praise louder. Proverbs 25 verse two, King Solomon writes this, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search out that matter. Judgment, wrath, alien power, severed bodies, and women. The world is full of mysteries. So what's the mystery of the gospel? Well, for all of Ephesians that we've been studying all this time, I think Paul has been telling us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse seven, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. It's all about the flow of blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to, to unite and a kefileo, bring together under one head all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory so that wonder would make the words of our praise louder. The mystery Of his will that is the mystery of God's judgment that is the mystery of this alien power that we call God the mystery is to unite all things under one wounded head giving meaning to each and every event in your life and actually he is your life he's the life Jesus the Christ Paul writes, all things, all things united in him, and we're incredulous. We can't conceive of such a thing. How that's even possible? We say, what about the outer darkness? What about the eternal and consuming fire? What what about Gehenna? We can't conceive of how all those things could be true and how God could reconcile all things to himself in Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross. We think it's impossible. So our judgment of God's judgment is impossible. I mean, what about Hitler, we say? What about Hitler? What about Arab terrorists? What about my, my worst enemy? What about the last and the least of these? What about the Gentiles? What about the, he- what about the unbelievers? In Ephesians 3, Paul expands on the mystery. Verse 4. Paul's gonna refer to unbelievers as Gentiles. And here he calls them fellow heirs. That means unbelievers will believe. Whether it's after eons of gnashing their teeth in outer darkness or right now upon hearing the word, whether it's after destruction in the valley of Gehenna or right now in surrender at the cross, every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise. The Gentiles, he says, are fellow heirs. For verse six, there is one God and father of all. Fellow heirs and members of the same body, Christ's body. And he is the head. It's the mystery revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember, he said, now is the judgment of the world. And when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. The mystery revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, it's a secret that's been on display from Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our own image. He didn't say, let us make some dudes in our image and, and others a gross distortion of our image. That will frustrate us and we'll have to torture forever and ever. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I bless you and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Paul continues, verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, the believers, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who creates all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The job of the church is to make the mystery known even to the principalities and powers. You see, the powers of this world do not comprehend or believe or even conceive of the mystery. Second Corinthians, Paul writes that we, the church, have been given the ministry of reconciliation whereas others have been given the ministry of condemnation you see there can be no proclamation of reconciliation unless there was first a proclamation of condemnation people can experience the joy of being saved unless they first experience the horror of being lost people can't know the revelation of mercy unless they first taste the pain of disobedience all things cannot be united in christ unless first all things were somehow separated from christ the separation is temporal the reconciliation is eternal ephesians 2 6 paul told us we are already seated in the heavenly places with God in Christ Jesus. The reconciliation, eternal. Separation is temporal. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You see, it's a proclamation. That's why it's a word that's preached. It's a proclamation, a word. God is salvation. In Hebrew, that's a name, Joshua. In English, we say Jesus. He is The revelation of the mystery He is the revelation of a mystery That is actually written into every cell in your body The next place Paul mentions the mystery is Ephesians 5 Where Paul quotes Genesis Ephesians 5, 31 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh This mystery is profound And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church He's saying, look Guys, you know that mystery you call a woman? (laughs) Women, you know that mystery that you call a man? That longing, that desire, that drama and trauma, sorrow, joy, sin, and grace, that communion and babies? That all refers to Jesus and you. So you see, this isn't some obscure egghead theology that makes no difference in in our lives. This means that I can confidently say with conviction and certainty, the way God feels about you is the way a bridegroom feels about his bride on his honeymoon night. The way God feels about you is the way that the world's best father feels about his own beloved children. So you see, at times, yeah, he he may get angry in time. At times, he may get angry. At times, he may conceal his intentions. At times, the children may wonder, what was he thinking? What are the purposes hidden in his heart? Well, the mystery of your father's will, just exactly what he is thinking, the very intention of his heart is Jesus the Christ. From the bosom of the father, he has made him, known. God is love and God is almighty and God conquers all in Christ Jesus our Lord that's the mystery of the gospel gospel means good news and now if you're honest we all ask ourselves this question was Paul smoking crack in that prison cell years ago in the dark when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians and so I looked at all the instances of the Greek word mysterion in the New Testament Jesus mentions the mysterion the mystery of the kingdom and it refers to the sovereignty and the power of God's will or God's choice God's word and you know Jesus is God's word in Romans next it shows up in Romans it refers to how God hardens people and how God creates faith The obedience of faith within people. Then Paul writes, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed at the last trumpet, that's the seventh trumpet, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Did you catch that? This perishable doesn't have the option of putting on the imperishable. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Paul uses the word mysterion just a few other times in similar sorts of ways. And then in Revelation 10, John sees an angel that looks like Jesus who swears to God that chronos, that's chronological time, the way we experience time as a sequence, he swears that chronos will be no more. And that in the days of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be finished. Teleo, from Teleo. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he cried, It is finished. You see, the mystery stands at the boundary of our time and God's eternity. So Paul refers to Christ as the end of the ages and the revelation of the mystery hidden for ages. God is love. God is almighty. And every moment in your life is like the unwrapping of the greatest present that could ever be conceived. Perfect communion with God. You are his and he is yours. And the island of Hawaii, it's just thrown in for kicks. That's not a bad mystery. That's a good mystery. That's the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 6, 19, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Why would Paul be imprisoned for proclaiming such a, a wonderful Mystery. Well, imagine if last Sunday evening, MetLife Stadium, with about five minutes left in the game, a referee runs onto the playing field, blows his whistle, and says, I have an announcement from NFL commissioner Roger Goodell. He says, I love you all. And so I hereby declare, you are all winners, you will all inherit a Super Bowl ring. Game over, time to party, that is my final, eternal, indestructible judgment. Well, a few Bronco fans might go, well, that's not so bad. They might kind of like it, but not really. Because by then, what would have happened? They would have judged themselves losers and couldn't really believe that they were winners. So they might sing hallelujah, but not from their heart. But Seahawks fans? Or Broncos fans that still held out hope for winning the game? They'd storm the field, beat the ref, and crucify him right there on the goalpost. You know, it's true. I mean, the only people that wouldn't be offended would be people that never bought into the game. And maybe some little kids. (laughs) Right? Because when you're a little kid, if you're like me, when we were kids, we just played football in the backyard all the time. Uh, But we didn't keep score we just enjoyed passing the ball and catching the ball and passing the ball and catching the ball and tackling your friends and being tackled by your friends tackle uh, uh, and passing the the last were first and the first were last because beating your neighbor was not the name of the game in fact that's why we called it a game the name of the game was enjoying your friends (laughs) okay well now imagine imagine if while those seahawks fans were crucifying the ref on the goalpost. They ripped off his shirt and found a Bronco jersey. I mean, that'd be even worse, right? Okay, or better yet, since we're in Denver, imagine if we ripped off his shirt and found a Green Bay Packer jersey, or even worse, an Oakland Raider jersey. Then imagine someone notices that the ref is wearing a rubber mask. So we rip off the rubber mask and realize it's really Roger Goodell, commissioner of the NFL, the big boss himself. You know, Jesus said that's basically exactly what will happen on Judgment Day. Matthew chapter 25. On that day, the Lord will say, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. That cuts like a knife. It judges to the division of soul and spirit. Whatever is love in you is the work of Christ's spirit within you, and did you know he is the spotless lamb of God offered to the Father? And whatever is not love in you, he bears in his body for he is the sacrifice for sin. He is the scapegoat. Sociologists tell us that groups unite through the designation of a scapegoat. So all of Denver unites by designating the Seahawks the scapegoat, united in in orange. Some Arabs make Americans their scapegoats. Some Americans make Arabs their scapegoats. And Arabs make, did I say that? Arabs, Americans, Jews made Gentiles their scapegoats. Christians make non-Christians their scapegoat. And Jesus said, you need a scapegoat? Look. I'm your damn scapegoat and whatever you do unto the least of these, well, you did it unto me. That's final judgment. Now, if you digest that a while and you say to yourself, my gosh, I'm the least of these. Then behold, Jesus says to you, <laughs> I'm in the least of these. I'm in you. I'm calling you to lose yourself and come dance with me. Last week after the, after the service, before the big, bang, big, big game, There's Trey. Trey grabbed me after the service. And Trey said something like this, okay? I'm I'm probably getting a little bit wrong, but something like this. Hey, Peter, I was thinking, we Christians tend to think about um, that that it's all about how you play the game. As if, you know, Jesus came to give us better strategies and better plays for playing the game and winning the game. But it's not about the game. It's about the party after the game. In fact, none of us wins the game. Jesus wins the game, and that's so true. Jesus wins the game, Jesus won the game, and yet he wasn't even playing the same game. We were playing beat your neighbor and Jesus was playing save your neighbor and beat the old game of beating your neighbor. In fact, turn that old game of beating your neighbor into a dance where you do-si-do with your neighbor. And now this illustration gets a wee bit mysterious, a little more strange. Imagine if, then, the commissioner uh, dies on the goalpost, rises from the dead, and his spirit breaks the space-time continuum, the bounds of the space-time continuum, and invades every angry, broken heart at MetLife Stadium, so as to use every play in the game to teach all of us to dance in the end, at the end of the game. So where sin had increased, grace abounded all the more, for when we see grace abounding all the more, we start to dance all the more God is grace and God is a dance God is three persons and one substance and we call that substance love on Good Friday at the cross only one was dancing but he came that we would all join his dance Well, anyway, I'm just saying, it's no wonder that Paul was in prison. The powers of this world hate the dance, (laughs) because it's judgment upon the game. Powers of this world hate the dance, and yet their hatred of the dance just testifies to the dance. Paul, Paul wrote this, I am an ambassador in chains. In that day, everyone knew that an ambassador had diplomatic immunity and that they wore gold chains to display the wealth of the nation that they represented and Paul writes, I am an ambassador in chains an ambassador in chains that must be like Jesus was a king crowned with thorns and the thorns were a message I'm not playing this old game I'm representing an entirely new reality. You know, if someone says, God just loves everybody. God loves all and he, and he forgives all. And he's sitting on a yacht in the Caribbean drinking a gin fizz. Well, this is kind of hard to believe, right? But if someone says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, while those very people nail him to a tree. Well, that word from that man just might give you pause. You just might drop to your knees and say, surely this was the Son of God. I don't want to play this game anymore. I want to join your dance. you see, if he did that, that decision would be a gift of his spirit. And the courage to announce that decision would also be the gift of his spirit. It would all be grace. So Paul teaches the Ephesians about spiritual warfare, the armor of God, and then says, pray always, Ephesians 3.18. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So why would Paul not declare the mystery of the gospel boldly? Maybe because he was scared that he'd get crucified, just like the ref. Chapter three, he said, I don't want you to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. He was worried about giving the Ephesians a heart attack with all of his sufferings. Maybe he was scared to suffer, maybe he was scared to die, you know, through the fear of death, the powers that be were trying to shut Paul up. And yet Paul wrote this, to live is Christ, and to die, i <laughs> be gain. And my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. So, so maybe he's scared to proclaim the mystery. Doesn't seem like it, but, but maybe. Maybe he's scared to, to do it. Maybe he thinks he can't do it. You know, when Martin Luther gave his first mass as a young priest, he barely made it through. He he writes about it later. He says that he was utterly terrified of the mystery. He thought to himself, who am I to offer the blood of Christ? The blood that flows from the throne. The blood that is judgment upon the entire earth. The blood that is also the life, the very life blood of God. Who is sufficient for these things? Thankfully, Martin Luther discovered St. Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Paul asks that question, who is sufficient for these things? And then he writes this, therefore, having received this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, if we thought that we had to be sufficient for these things, dang, we'd have a heart attack. Right there, heart attack. So why does Paul need prayer? Because he really can't do it. And he really needs to trust that God does do it. And even that is a gift of grace, trust. He needs faith, faith by grace. So maybe he was scared to do it. Maybe he thought he couldn't do it. Maybe he thought he shouldn't do it. I bet more than anything the devil whispered to old Rabbi Saul, hey, who are you, Saul, to preach the gospel? The gospel of grace? You are the very least of all the saints, the the believers. Paul, you are the foremost, you're the chief of sinners. And according to Paul, that was true. Chief, chief of sinners. I imagine Satan worked overtime to remind Paul of the faces of men, women, and children... That he had drug off to condemnation and possible death. All in the name of orthodox religion. Satan reminded him of his past sins and his current propensity to sin. Romans 7, Paul writes this. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Paul knew that to preach the gospel of grace to others, he needed to trust the gospel of grace for himself. And that itself was a work of God, or it wouldn't be grace. So Paul implores the Ephesians, pray, please, pray, pray. Pray for me that I preach the mystery boldly and that... I don't lose heart. You know, people have been asking me, Peter, how's your heart? So this morning, I would like to share with you my heart. This is an actual video of my heart. On December four, sometime around 11 p.m., the doctors had run a tube up my femoral artery from my groin, into my left coronary artery. That that tube is the thing that you see up there in the upper left-hand corner. Every few seconds, they'd pump dye through the tube, which would move with the blood and show up on this x-ray. Now, there are two coronary arteries, and I'm pretty sure this is my left one. And it looks pretty good. looks pretty good. Now the view changes. You'll notice that my spine is on the right, and I do, in fact, have a spine. (laughs) And the catheter now is in my right coronary artery, but the blood's not going where it's supposed to go. My right coronary artery is clogged. I'm having a heart attack. You know, the heart is a pump, and it runs on the very thing it pumps. The blood flows through Uh, the heart, but it must also feed the heart. In November, a friend was praying for me and she told me that she heard the Lord say this, Peter does not believe the lies the evil one tells about me, but he believes the lies the evil one tells about him. Now, you shouldn't believe every prophetic word you hear. You should test the words. And I did. And I thought, that sounds right. But I didn't know quite what to do to fix it. You know, you just try to believe. Then I had a heart attack. It was like miracle bad. And miracle good. I mean, it was just weird that way. Everybody's like, oh, how's your recovery? I go, I I really don't have a recovery. I, I know I had a heart attack, but I'm feeling great. So I asked the same friend to pray, wondering, um, this was really my question for God, what the hell was that all about? And she heard the Lord say this, Peter speaks the truth, but he doesn't live in the truth. There is no truth, but my truth. You see, I think that was a more forceful way of saying what he had said before about listening to the devil's lies. It's not that I have secretly become a Muslim terrorist or something or run an international drug cartel on the side, but that I preach grace and don't always believe grace for me. And then the Lord reminded her of how he sees me and that there's no truth but his truth. He reminded her that he sees me as a rock, even though I don't feel like a rock. And as a man after God's own heart, even though I feel guilty like David. He said, Peter has great compassion and a huge capacity to love. He loves his children like I love my children. But Peter loves from his heart. That is why he feels worn out, depleted, and empty. He needs to learn to love from my heart. For I am love. And my love is endless. Now, I don't know quite what to make of all of that. But I do know that for years, my wife, who also seems to have this prophetic gifting that blows my mind, she said to me on several occasions, she said, Peter, do you know that the Lord calls you His heart? And I believe that I'm called to pump His blood. That is, preach the mystery of the Gospel. But I can't pump the river of life unless I drink from the river of life. I can't preach grace unless I believe grace. And let me say, I think I'm ready to die for the proclamation of grace. In fact, I think I believe grace for all creation. I think I really believe grace for each one of you, but I kind of sort of only partly believe grace for me. I mean, I really believe God loves you and forgives you. I even believe God loves Hitler and forgives Hitler. I, I, I mean that if somewhere in Adolf is the breath of God, then God in Christ Jesus, I believe, descends into hell to preach to Adolf and purify him with eternal fire and make him new. I mean, I really believe the mystery that God loves all, God forgives all, and God reconciles all, but I really struggle to believe the mystery that God loves me, forgives me, or even likes me and that sounds really humble of me doesn't it sounds really humble of me but you see it is profoundly arrogant of me why do I believe the grace of God and the blood of Jesus the Christ is good enough for Hitler good enough for other people and yet not good enough for me why because I'm not proud of Hitler. I'm really not proud of other people, but I'm proud of me. And the principles and powers encourage me to play that game, to be proud of me, and then condemn me until I'm finally trapped within me. Why am I so hard on myself? Because I'm so proud of myself. But now when I see that, if I condemn myself, it's just more self damning the flow of God's grace into myself, Oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, like I was saying, I was having a heart attack. There was a part of my heart, not all of my heart, not all of it, but part of my heart that was trying to pump the blood without drinking the blood. And, and I think there's a part of me, my old me, that tries to preach grace without drinking grace. And I suspect that's true of you as well. We try to love without drinking God, who is love. We try to be graceful without Drinking grace, believing grace, and of our own will. We can't just simply decide to drink grace or it's not grace. Grace is a miracle and everything is grace. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians saying, pray, 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 please, please, please pray for me. Well, like I was saying, I was having a heart attack. And I just couldn't decide to not have a heart. It was too late to take fish oil pills. I needed a savior. And so Dr. Potasnik down at St. Anthony's, he undammed the damnation. Uh, he ran this wire, you can see that wire. He ran that wire through the blockage down into my heart and he undammed the damnation. And my heart drank the life that it pumped and immediately I turned to the nurse and I said, I'm okay. And now I'm gonna declare to you the mystery of the gospel. In 33 AD, at the boundary of time and eternity, God in Christ Jesus undammed the damnation. He, he, He condemned sin in the flesh. That's the way Paul puts it. He undammed the damnation. He condemned sin in the flesh and gave you his life. You are eternally okay and seated in the heavenly places with God in Christ Jesus. And God is revealing the wonder of that mystery in space and time that the words of your praise would be even louder. Even your sin reveals the wonder of his grace. Even your unbelief will reveal the wonder of God's redemption. It's not a bad mystery. It's a very, very, very good mystery the best mystery you see i think the greatest mystery is not that god redeems all the greatest mystery is that god redeems me and for you that god redeems you he likes you (laughs) and when you come to believe it you'll start dancing. And you will want everybody to join the dance. On the night that the word of God was betrayed, Jesus from the bosom of the Father took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take it eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, also called the eternal covenant. That's amazing. This cup is the eternal covenant in my blood. Drink it. And now think about that. His body, his blood, and you are his body. And you need his blood. And I'm giving it to you. Drink it, or you're dead. That's God's judgment. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. We invite you to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. Members of the prayer team will be on either side. They'd love to pray with you. And after you receive the body and blood, may the words of your praise grow ever louder. In Jesus' name. I think I'm supposed to ask you to pray for me like uh, Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him. And... I'm not asking that you pray for this heart, because I think it's working just fine. I'm asking that you pray for this heart, (laughs) that it would be unclogged of myself, and that I would believe and trust God's judgment rather than the world's judgment or my own judgment. And I'm asking you to pray Because I can decide to take fish oil pills from my heart, (laughs) this heart, but this one, that, that choice to believe God's grace, I believe is a miracle. And I have to make the choice and yet I can only make it because God makes it within me. Because he is, Jesus is the goodwill of the Father. And so I'd love it if right now you could just Pray, And I asked Andrew if he would kind of start us. We'll just pray for um, a little bit. This is a little bit weird for me, but he'll start us and then if you want to pray, thank you.
1: So here's what I think we should do. Um, I'd like the prayer team and others to come forward as representatives of our praying life of our community and lay hands on Peter. And I got to pray a lot last night for Peter, so I'm going to lead us out briefly, but then I really want to create opportunity for you to pray, and for Peter to hear your prayers on his behalf to God the Father, right, through Jesus. And so we'll create some space for you to pray into that request, and then I'll close us up and we'll kind of um, finish our worship time together this morning. Okay, so God, I want to lift up Peter to you and thank you for him as a pastor and as a friend and colleague. And, you know, I remember when I first heard him preach, I was immediately struck with by how talented of a preacher he was and that there was this first-rate mind behind all that. But as I've gotten to uh, work with him and alongside of him, I think what strikes me most and what I've learned about Peter is it's really his heart that helps him to preach as he does and so it doesn't surprise me that your word to him is that he has a heart after your own, that, you, that he in fact is your heart, and yet it also doesn't surprise me that he struggles with condemnation. Um, it doesn't surprise me that he would confess that he's proud, and yet it doesn't surprise me that it's his heart that would be willing to confess that to us. So God, we pray right now that Peter would hear your word to him. And that that word would be living water in his life. And that he would know that your word is your work, not his work. And his task is just to witness to that word, to speak it and allow you to do your thing. And so God, we want to set him free, we want to ask, I mean, it may be that you need to teach him this lesson again and again and again so that he could preach, but it also, it's our hope that he could have a season now where he's set free from the burden of all that self-judgment and condemnation and that feeling of that he has to carry the whole thing through his preaching. And so we ask that you would set him free now to experience your grace in his life poured out upon him. From the throne of heaven, and from Calvary itself. So, at this time, um, congregation, I let you pr- pray right now. Pray for your pastor, in Jesus' name. And our faith will be made stronger in the presence of our Savior.
0: And so, Lord God, that is our prayer, and. Father, I just wanna publicly thank you for the people in this room and the incredible gift that they are to me because they are um, ambassadors of you, your temple, your sanctuary, your body. And so if I'm like somehow like a heart or something, well, I thank you for the body because hearts just don't do well on tables in the sunlight by themselves. So. Father, thank you so much for the people in this room. And Lord God, I thank you that, um, Lord, you ask all of us to proclaim your word. And I thank you for how they have just proclaimed it to me. And Lord God, I pray for them, for each person in this room, that they would receive your word of um, relentless grace. And then, Lord God, would be free to speak your word of relentless grace to this world that is just starving for grace. Lord, I thank you that you choose to use each person in this room as a testimony. So, Lord God, I shared a testimony this morning, and I pray everyone in here would share a testimony, just like why they like you, why they want you. And God, as people were praying, I also realized this. Well, this is the heart of spiritual warfare. This is what Paul was talking about. And so Lord God, I pray that as the people in this room, which includes me, believe your mercy and your grace, we would see you crush the head of the ancient serpent, the accuser, for all his accusations have been broken. They've been nailed to a tree with you, Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I I thank you for this as well gosh, gosh, but this, okay, I'll stop after this, but Jesus, I was thinking last, I was wondering yesterday, well, like, is Jesus harder on himself than he is on us? And at first I wanted to say, Lord, no, and then I thought, but that's weird because I don't know that Jesus is harder on himself than he is on us because he makes us himself. And so Jesus, thank you for descending into our dark hearts And in that place, taking upon yourself, our sin, our sorrow, our failure, and then rising from the dead and bringing us with you. You are good, Jesus. And we have every reason to sing, every reason to dance, every reason to party, even now, in your name, amen.